you've found Rebirth, a podcast to inspire. I'm Kate Brenton, your host, and I'll guide us through stories of intuitive courage and empowered living. Today is our third episode of our Mindset series. We're going to talk about how no one else can do the work you're here to do, why clearing out your mind of the clutter can help you be aligned, and how the pressure of fitting in has actually been a fascinating study of neurology and what we can do about it. I'm so glad that you are here. If you find something here as a resource, please pass it on to another. If you have time to leave us a review, it really goes a long way so we can share more good. Thanks for tuning in. So glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in to the third installment of our Mindset series. And this episode, we're going to face on the concept. We're going to focus a lot with Florence Scovel Shin again, and we're going to talk about the fact that no one else can do what you're here to do. Shin says, let no other hand do your work. No one else can do what you're here to do. So I'm going to start off with a longer quote from her. Okay. And we're going to let this lead us through our episode today. Quote, there is a perfect place that you are here to fill, something you are to do, which no one else can do. There is a perfect picture of this in the superconscious mind. It usually flashes across the conscious as an unattainable ideal, something that is too good to be true. It usually flashes across the conscious mind as an unattainable ideal, something too good to be true. I love this definition. I love this definition. How many times have I felt into some expansively wild idea and then thought, oh, how would I would how would I do that? And if I had awareness, I would be remembering um, this fantastic advice I was given once. And and well, I'm not gonna do a disclaimer, we've heard it more than one way, but this the, that well, once you find yourself asking how, you're asking in the realm of infinite possibility, which is not your job. Your job is to show up and do small steps and then let the the inspired action that you put forth out, let it bring back to you, you know, what you're achieving or something better, right? Because some of us might say like, oh, I was, I was applying for this job, then it was even better than I could imagine, you know, all that kind of stuff. So let's talk about there is a perfect place that you are here to fill, something you are t- to do, which no one else can do. And that you have hints of that in your um, superconscious that's inside of you. So when we say the answers are within, there is, we've all, we were all, you remember being taught, we only use like 10% of our brain in high school. And it was like, I remember thinking like, that can't be true. And why are we only using 10%? I, I don't believe we're only using 10%, but I do believe it is, well, it is curious that we don't learn more about visualization and focusing our mindset in our school current school system. Um, it is becoming information that again is resurfacing and um, it is finding us in different formats. But it, at last I heard it wasn't taught in regular school curriculum. But it, it's sort of interesting that if we only use 10, let me go back to this, if you only use 10% of your brain, then what else is residing in there? What else is residing in there? And so when people tell us, 
when I say people, meaning friends or other writers, because clearly it's not just Neville Goddard and Florence Shin that are talking about this. So when we're, when we're exposed to the concept that the answers are within, which is what all the great thought leaders and spiritual leaders are telling us, um, and you might be like, no, it's not, or I would already know. Or are we only thinking about our conscious mind, you know, the one that is paying the bills and being um, our attention being diverted so we can't really harness the depth and breadth of our creativity and like how do we get into that um subconscious and superconscious mind um you know and my answer to that would be meditation and spiritual development um i guess even before that would be um stillness and breath right you have to make enough space for stillness and silence to get a shot getting access to your to your own brilliance right that's that's really the tagline, Awaken the Brilliance Within, which was a phrase that came to me and took many years for me to kind of sit with and kind of understand what it meant. And then it took me even longer to, to, to write it out on my website and make it, make you know, use that as a, a mission to awaken the brilliance within. So stillness. So if you think about the first episode where Goddard is talking all about like awareness and the content that's coming in, and then we have an information overload and where every, you know, our, um, our focus is down to less than a goldfish. It's like, well, if we don't shift our focus and discipline ourselves, then we'll always be running at the super, at the superficial level of our consciousness. So fascinating. And that actually less external drives more access to internal. If you're new to this podcast, I think there are phases in our human development that are more external and then other phases that are more internal. So, you know, I would think of like my 20s and 30s was very external Uh, before then too, you know, but like the two decades before that, you're sort of learning how to be be you know who what is it to be what is it to individuate and then you're like oh this is something I'm interested in and those were years for me of like college and graduate school and learning you know like learning whatever I wanted to learn honestly like herbalism because it was fun and and learning different healing modalities because it was fascinating not because I was trying to um particularly achieve something but that I was like thirsty to learn 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 and then at some point you're like okay, now I need to turn towards myself and what, what have I put in my basket? You know, what have I been accruing and how am I integrating it? And then how am I offering it back? You know, how am I offering it out? And so it, um, it might seem audacious to say that there's something here that only you can do, but I don't think it is. And I think that maybe I forget that more often than I would prefer And I also think that not all of us are on a grand scale on the external world. You know, some of us might be on a grand scale in our own small world, and some of us might not even consider that a grand scale, you know. Um, I do think that to have peace, you need to have a personal alignment. Boundaries become very easy when you know that saying no to something is actually saying yes to the more important things, you know, the things that you've already decided to focus on, or that what you have to offer does not have to be like what someone else is offering for both of your offerings to be of equal value, of equal good, of equal um, service. I'm going to give you a really small example, and I'm going to talk 
uh, ambiguously because honestly, I could be the friend in need in this moment. And I'll tell you a story. So there were four friends out to lunch, myself and three others. And in that moment, one of the girlfriends was in a place of need. And one of the females there, one of the women there said, um, okay, I'm going to go home with you and I'm going to help you paint. Okay. And I said, I was like, well, first of all, I was really impressed when the woman had decided that she was going to leave lunch to go with the other person to go help paint. And I was like, wow, I should probably go do that. But I knew I needed to go home and finish work that I had to do. But I had that flash of, oh, I should, I mean, that's really such a nice person acting immediately. I should be doing that. So I said um, to the friend in need, hey, listen, the next time you have a Saturday, come see me for some body work. And, and, you know, after you're done painting and I can help with that. And then the the third friend said, and after you see Kate, call me and I'm going to help you. And, you know, she, I don't know, she helped with like furniture and like investment stuff. But the friend that offered the furniture and investment said, I have to say, I felt the same way as Kate, that um, I should be running off to paint. And I thought, oh, look at this, oh, you know. There's four people in on this lunch date. One person was in need. There were three women all offering different gifts and services that at good timing in uh, unconditional offering, no expectation. And actually, if all three of us had just gone to paint, it wouldn't have been as um, balanced and as supportive. Right. Does that make sense? Hopefully not too vague. And the friend in need said, oh, um, it's just really hard for me to receive. And there it is. That's the reason clearing, stillness, feeling the feelings, moving things through is so important. Because she is was offered support from a trustworthy source. No strings attached. She knows all of us. No need to guard. Now, I've been there. I've been that person in need that doesn't want to receive the help. I'll speak for myself because of the shame. I should have had it figured out. You know, what do I have to offer? I can't, uh, I can't reciprocate immediately. And it's like, that's not the point. The point is on this one lunch, in this one day, there were three that were to give and one that was to receive. And in the giving, there was receiving. And all three of us were learning to give unconditionally in a boundaried way instead of saying, oh, I should be doing what the other person was doing. We all responded knowing that there was a perfect place that we were each to fill, something that we were each to do, which no one else could do. That was literally true. And it was interesting that as we were saying this, all four females were saying this at a table, there was a man over on the side that interjected to the friend in need. And he said, pardon me, but I couldn't help but overhear a little bit of your conversation. And what you need to do is you have to give all this up to God. And I was like, is this really happening right now? You know, this is amazing. My high pitched. Sorry, I'm really efforting not to high pitch on you because you have me, you know, you're listening to me probably with your earbuds in of, um, to me, a perfectly aligned moment. So it's, it's, if we don't think we have a place, 
Are we not valuing ourselves enough <clears throat> that we can see our place? And oftentimes, <clears throat> to, to, to make that ultimate, to get to that ultimate place, we have to go in darkness and um, we have to take one step before we can take another. We can't always see the full effulgence of where we're heading. But if we don't feel that we're even worthy of the journey, it's going to be really hard to get there. And so it, when you think about there's a perfect place and that there is a flash across our consciousness of uh, an unattainable ideal, something that's too good to be true, that's normally it. It's like, then we have to expand into the fact that like, it's okay for us to catch up to our good. It's okay for us to make room for the easy. Kate Northup said something like, um, the way you secretly want to be doing something is the way you should be doing it. Or what you secretly want to be doing, that's what you need to focus on. And and we can be like, well, why, why, why is this so hard for us? Well, let me tell you, my friend, I don't have a specific answer, but I can tell you that I have been um, clearing out old teaching binders that I was just going to throw out right away because they're super old. And, um, but then I went through, I'm going through the curriculum and it is timely. So there's this article that, um, from the New York times written by Sandra Blakesley, uh, June 28th, 2005, what other people may say may change what you see a new study. I'm going to read it to you. A new study uses advanced brain scanning technology to cast light on a topic that psychologists have puzzled over for more than half a century, social conformity. The study was based on a famous series of laboratory experiments from the 19th, 1950s by a social psychologist, Dr. Solomon Ash. You may have heard of this by now. It's been in the news a bit. But I didn't go looking for this study, just so you know. This just came because we were cleaning out the garage. In those early studies, the subjects were shown two cards. On the first was a vertical line. On the second were three lines, one of them the same length as that on the first card. Then the subjects were asked to say which two lines were alike, something that most five-year-olds could answer correctly. But Dr. Ash added a twist. Seven other people in cahoots with the researchers also examined the lines and gave their answers before the subjects did. And sometimes these confederates intentionally gave the wrong answer. Dr. Ash was astonished at what happened next. After thinking hard, three out of four subjects agreed with the incorrect answers given by the confederates at least once. And one in four conformed 50% of the time. Ash died in 1996, always wondered about the findings. Did the people who gave, gave in to group do so knowing that their answers were wrong? Or did the social pressures actually change their perceptions? The new study tried to find an answer using MRI, and the researchers found that the social conformity showed up in the brain as activity in regions that are entirely devoted to perception. But independence of judgment, standing up for one's belief, showed up as activity in brain areas involved in emotion. The study found suggesting that there is a cost for going against the group. We like to think that seeing is believing, said Dr. Gregory Burns, a, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist at Emory University in Atlanta. This, again, was from 2005. But the study's finding, he said, showed that seeing is believing what the group tells you to believe. It's a very important piece of work, said Dan Airely, the professor of management at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who was not involved in the study. It suggests that information from other people may color our perception at a very deep level. Fascinating. How does this correlate? Well, if we're told 
that something can't be achieved, if we're told that that is outlandish, if we're told that we're not good enough, or if we're not surrounded by people that uplift us, if we feel a sense of shame because why would we get the good thing and the other person be struggling, if we feel that our gifts aren't good enough and, and we don't have the strength to be aligned, then we will fall out in a way into what the group is telling us to do as a, instead of following the flow, Florence Scovel Shin, who's telling us there's a perfect place that you are to fill and something you are to do, which no one else can do. There's a perfect picture of this in the superconscious mind, and it usually flashes across the conscious mind as an unattainable ideal. Something too good to be true. Here's the thing. 90 to 90% of our purchasing decisions are made by the subconscious. Is that wild? That 90 to 90%, 90 to 95% of our purchasing decisions are made by the subconscious. So don't tell me that we're not making other decisions. How do we build the fortitude of our own alignment, our intuition? How do we build our intuition? Well, Scoville says, never violate a hunch. What is that little voice saying? Don't go with the practical, go with the little voice, go with it in small places, because how do you meet the little things prepare you for the bigger ones? So in that luncheon, when all of us offered our gifts that were different and in an aligned way, and because we were in an environment that we felt uplifted by each other, we all felt safe enough to, I say safe purposely, meaning we wouldn't be judged because based on this study from 2005 and Dr. Ash, that is a real threat to be not seen in the herd. We all offered what we could offer easily and beneficially instead of shrinking and, and thinking about what we should be doing versus what, what, what is in alignment, not violating our hunch, doing the work that was ours to do. Okay, I'm going to read you something from the Tao to help us with this, okay? I find all of this fascinating and I would love to hear your comments about this. Okay, here's what the Tao tells us about our work. Take on difficulties while they are still easy. Do great things while they are still small. Step by step, the world's burden is lifted. Piece by piece, the world's treasure is amassed. So the sage stays with his daily task and accomplishes the greatest thing. Beware of those who promise a quick and easy way, for much ease brings many difficulty. Follow your path to the end. Accept difficulty as an opportunity. This is the sure way to end up with no difficulties at all. Follow your path to the end. Accept difficulty as an opportunity. This is the sure way to end up with no difficulties at all. Thank you for tuning in. May these words show themselves to you this week as an invitation to awaken your brilliance. I'll see you back here next week with our last mindset episode. Thank you for tuning into the rebirth podcast. If you're starting to wonder, Hmm, how can I change my mindset? I invite you to book a discovery call, go to katebrenton.com, click on work with Kate and schedule a discovery call. Perhaps route to rise is the right program for you. It creates momentum movement and the mindset for you to root into your goals and rise to the life that is calling to you. See you back here next week.